difícil. I want you all to uh, cast your mind back, way back. Uh, do you recall from our introductory Sunday school lesson from 1 Corinthians, what is the theological message of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians? Uh, what's the overall burden of the book? What's this book's main theme? It's difficult to summarize uh, because this letter responds to, as we've seen, at least 10 different issues. Uh, and since we began this series back in July of 2021, by the way, this is the 28th and final sermon, uh, we've been considering each problem in turn and Paul's gospel solution to each of these problems. The church in Corinth has many, many problems, but the gospel solves them all. But if you want to distill the theological message of 1 Corinthians down to one sentence, it would be this. The gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and in unity. The gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and in unity. Now, God's holy people may not be one of the first descriptors that comes to mind when we think of the church in Corinth. At least some in this church are sinfully dividing over church teachers. They're tolerating incest, suing one another in open court, excusing sex with prostitutes, claiming that it's good not to pursue sex with one's spouse, proudly claiming special knowledge, clinging to their rights in a way that does not edify fellow believers, abusing fellow believers when celebrating the Lord's Supper, misevaluating and misusing spiritual gifts, and denying that God will resurrect the corpses of believers. Nevertheless, how does Paul begin his epistle? Chapter 1, verse 2, he writes, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. All Christians are God's holy people. But this doesn't mean that we're sinless. God's holy people gradually become what we already are. Holy. Christians must mature like a child grows into adulthood or as a seed sprouts and grows into a plant. So the gospel requires God's holy people to mature. And like every church, the Corinthian church must mature in two main areas, purity and unity. The gospel requires that. There will be purity. There will be unity. The church must mature in purity to counteract society's worldly values, as well as mature in unity to solve conflicts within the church. And really, another way to say that God's holy people must mature in purity and in unity is that we must mature in love. And Paul's concluding words in today's passage include five exhortations in verses 13 and 14 that culminate in the final one, verse 14, do everything in love. And this is how we respond, New City, not only to chapter 16, but to the entire letter. Do 
Everything in Love. That is the title of our sermon today, uh, the last sermon in our First Corinthians series. But what does that look like? How should brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, love their spiritual family? How do we do that? Which is a very appropriate question to ask before we sit down at the family dinner table. How do we love one another? How should brothers and sisters in Jesus the Messiah love their spiritual family? Paul would say, you see this in your inserts, by giving money generously to those with physical needs, by showing hospitality to those passing through, by maturing in purity and unity, that is by maturing in love, by submitting to church leaders, by feeling affection for brothers and sisters and when, when we greet them and thus remind them that we care, by greeting each other affectionately, by loving the Lord, awaiting his return eagerly, maturing by means of his grace and warmly receiving love from spiritual shepherds. And with this chapter's lessons in place, uh, we can sit down and we can enjoy our meal at the family dinner table together in love. And we can see with the opening four verses of 1 Corinthians 16, Paul instructs the Corinthians about collecting money for believers in Jerusalem, presumably because those believers are poor. And this offering is very important to the Apostle Paul. This collection for the saints was a major focus of Paul on his third missionary journey from A.D. 52 to 57. Each letter he wrote on this journey mentions this collection for the saints. First and second Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans. And second Corinthians has the largest section devoted to this topic. If you would turn to second Corinthians chapter eight, verse one. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. That is Gentile churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. That's a pretty intense verse. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We need to understand that this collection for the poor in Jerusalem is more than just uh, zeal for social justice. The significance of this collection is actually salvation historical. This is a collection taken from Gentile churches, Gentiles who are now part of the covenant community of God and heirs to the promise God made to the patriarchs for Jewish Christians suffering in Jerusalem. Paul writes in Romans 15, 27, they, that is Gentile churches, were pleased to do it. 
And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. In other words, this so-called gift to Paul's thinking is actually a debt. Paul wants Gentile Christians to recognize that they had received so much from Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, uh, specifically in the gospel. The salvation enjoyed by Gentiles comes only by the way of the Jewish, Jewish Messiah and the fulfillment of promises made to Israel. Paul worked away at that theme, hammer and tongs, back in chapter 11 of the book of Romans. But the salvation historical reality places Gentile churches under a moral obligation, he's arguing, to give generously and to help alleviate the poverty of the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. It's a humble, it's material, symbolic demonstration of their gospel indebtedness. And for their part... Jewish Christians need to understand that salvation history has moved on from the days in which God's people were mainly restricted to Israel. Their willingness to receive a financial contribution from Gentiles will signify their acceptance of this new salvation historical situation. So this can't get messed up. Uh, Here you go, Jerusalem Jewish Christians. Here's 50 bucks. Can you imagine? Uh, This needs to be a sizable contribution. Uh, There's too much riding on this. Now, about the collection for the Lord's Day, verse 1, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So Paul instructs the church to set aside money, and then he qualifies this command in four ways. Number one, when do they set aside this money? Each Sunday, presumably when the church gathers each week to worship on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. With what result? So that they will save up money. Three, how much are they to set aside? In keeping with your income, Paul writes, which, of course, qualifies the amount a believer should give. And Paul's phrase, in keeping with your income, reminds us that neither here nor in any other New Testament text is the tithe taught as incumbent upon Christians. I get asked this a lot during membership interviews. Uh, Actually, people just phone me up and ask me about this too, to tell you the truth. Uh, Paul refuses to legislate that a certain percentage of one's income must be returned to the Lord. Instead, verse 2 can be taken as support for the concept of the graduated tithe. And I would recommend this approach to us all. What we give back to the Lord is his money anyway, right? Uh, We're being faithful stewards of what he's entrusted to us. It's not our money, it's his. We're we're just stewards. And that giving of the money back to the Lord needs to be in keeping with how much money we make, with with our income. Uh, As Randy Alcorn puts it, as your standard of living increases, so should your standard of giving. Cheerful, sacrificial, consistent giving. 
You're going to see that every point of this, like as we kind of worked our way down these, all these various points, it's a sermon unto itself. And it actually it's sermons I've probably preached in the past. So we're just going to look at this and move on. But the fourth qualification, for what purpose is the money to be set aside so that Paul will not need to collect money for the Jerusalem church when he arrives in Corinth? Listen to what the apostle writes in 2 Corinthians 9, 4 to 5. He writes, if any Macedonians came with me and find you unprepared, we not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Verse 3 of our text. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men and approve and send them with your gifts to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So the Corinthian church, Paul's saying, should select people to deliver their gift to the church in Jerusalem. And Paul plans to write introductory letters to use after they arrive in Jerusalem. Or Paul might go along with, you know, with himself, which in fact he eventually does. He goes with them. Uh, And there are at least three advantages for the Corinthian church and possibly other churches to send a group to transport a large number of coins to Jerusalem. Number one, it's it's a precaution against thieves. Uh, Number two, it provides accountability that the Jerusalem church is receiving the entire gift. Paul is very concerned about that. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 8, 20 to 21. He writes, we want to avoid any criticism of the way that we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. So it provides accountability. But most importantly, number three, it enables face-to-face fellowship with multiple churches. It fosters unity and connectedness, transcending locations and cultures, especially cultures that are predominantly Gentile or predominantly Jewish. So, how should brothers and sisters in Jesus the Messiah love their spiritual family? By giving money generously to those with physical needs. That's the first four verses. And, now, by showing hospitality to those passing through. In verses 5 to 12, Paul shares travel plans for himself, Timothy, and Apollos. Uh, But let me just make one important digression before we get to hospitality uh, specifically. We read in Scripture of several, several moments in the Apostle Paul's life, uh, dramatic moments, where the Apostle is led by some intervening revelation. And so he adjusts his plans or he adjusts his expectations accordingly. But we sometimes overlook, what we do overlook sometimes, is how much of the Apostle's ministry is a function of planning and instruction and pastoral judgments, and and even uncertainties. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Just like our own lives, in other words, right? Uh, No Christian has a crystal ball into God's will. And if you think you do, I'm I'm sorry, but you're you're dead wrong. So Paul tells the Corinthians about his travel plans in verses 5 to 9. He doesn't want to see them immediately on his way to Macedonia, only to make a passing visit. Uh, He intends to go to Macedonia first, and then perhaps, 
he will stay with the Corinthians a while or even spend the winter when it's safe to travel on the Mediterranean. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 7. I hope to spend some time with you, Paul writes, if the Lord permits. But before embarking on any part of this trip, he intends to stay for a while longer in Ephesus, verse 9, because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. And a more form-based translation of that verse might read, For a door to me has opened great and effective. This open door is effective in that it's a promise, it promises a rich field of harvest. Uh, but we can clearly see there's uncertainty in the Apostle's plans, isn't there? He's not quite sure what's going to happen, but he's trying to lay out the next few months you know, of his service, you know, he's trying to tell them, just he wants there to be that, that maximum benefit of actually, here's the plans, here's, here's what I have together, you know, for the promotion of the gospel and for the good of God's people. He's planning. He's a planning man. And then the next two verses, uh, verses 10 to 12, suggest that the movements of Timothy and Apollos aren't entirely predictable either. Though in both instances, Paul provides the Corinthians with information covering certain eventualities. Again, he's planning. God willing, this is what will happen is as we saw in the opening four verses and Paul's instructions to the Corinthians to plan ahead in their giving. Uh, He knows that if the Corinthians start collecting money the week that he shows up at their local church, you know, they're going to give little. Faithful, regular giving set aside on the first day of every week, that will ensure that a considerable sum is raised. And of course, Money in the first century could not be transferred electronically. Somebody has to transport it to Jerusalem personally. So Paul wants the Corinthians to choose men that they themselves approve of. And then he'll provide them with letters of introduction to the leaders in Jerusalem. Or he might go himself with them. But you see, you're seeing due diligence, planning, foresight, human responsibility. But today, there is a form of spirituality that wants to wait for explicit guidance for every decision. A spirituality that regards a phrase like, if the Lord wills, as a sanctimonious cop-out. That certainly wasn't the Apostle Paul's perspective, and it shouldn't be ours either, brothers and sisters. Do you want to know how to think biblically about knowing the Lord's will? Read Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. Just Do Something, it's called. That might be an excellent book for your next ISF. Verse 5. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. So he intends to travel through northern Greece, that's Macedonia, and then he might stay with the Corinthians so that uh, they can help support his next journey, which he hopes will be to Spain. But did you notice something? Unlike before, the Apostle Paul is now giving the Corinthians an opportunity to support him financially. He didn't use that right before. That's what chapter 9 was all about, all that kerfluffle. (laughs) Paul about Paul abandoning his rights for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 12, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. 
On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And now he's changed his position. Now they can support him. He wants that. 16.7. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. Back to this theme again. What what does James famously teach in chapter 4 of his epistle? Any planning in life which ignores God's sovereign providence is arrogant presumption. James 4.13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Does anybody here have plans to make money in 2022? (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Does anybody have travel plans? Hope so. That'd be nice. Uh, A change in career, perhaps? Plans for marriage? Children? James writes in verse 14, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That's cutting right to the chase. (laughs) Beloved, we're dependent upon God for everything, including our next breath. And God can cut short our lives just as quickly as the sun dissipates the morning mist or a shift in the direction of the wind blows away smoke. Your life, my life, the life of our spouse, the life of our parents, the life of our child. Proverbs 27.1 Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Sisters, any one of you right now could have a malignant lump growing in your breast. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Brothers, any one of us could have a fatal car accident this week. If God wills, we could be paralyzed before the day is through. What is your life? It is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We sing that, don't we? All glory be to Christ. That's actually in the lyrics. What is your life? It's a mist that vanishes at dawn. We sing that. Therefore, Christian... Assess all of your future plans. Do you have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 25-year plan? That's fine. That's good. That's not a presumptuously arrogant thing to do. Um, Getting an education, marriage, kids, career, investments, keeping healthy, saving for retirement. Those aren't practices that James would condemn. Uh, Many of them uh, may very well be a wise form of stewardship. We just need to be certain that we're hanging on to all those plans loosely. Not one of those things is guaranteed by God. Our Heavenly Father is sovereign, and He has plans for our life that we know nothing about. And, and those plans may be at radical variance with what we're expecting or what we're hoping for. Radically different. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. This is still in James 4. Uh, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That is the biblical attitude we need to be striving for. 
If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. An attitude that recognizes both our creatureliness and the sovereignty of God's will. And the right attitude is to plan, but to make allowance for God's will to change those plans, just like Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 16. Plan, but make allowance for God to change those plans. 1 Corinthians 16.10 When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. And Paul had already, already written back in chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. But if some Corinthians don't respect Paul, how much more might they cause trouble for Paul's youthful representative Timothy? Uh, So Paul exhorts the Corinthians to be hospitable to Timothy because he's doing the same pastoral work that Paul does. He writes, see to it that he has nothing to fear. Perhaps because Timothy was prone to fear. It seems like he was a timid man. We we, we read something that could be that in 2 Timothy 1.7. He could be a, a, a timid man. Then he writes in verse 11, no one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, about our dear brother, our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. So it seems that in the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul, they requested that Apollos pay them a visit. And Paul encouraged Apollos to go do that. Uh, But do you remember that the sectarian sin in the opening chapters? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. But here's Apollos. So Paul's saying, I encourage you, go there, go to the Corinthian church. But this shows that they're, rather than competing, Paul and Apollos are unified co-workers, right? They're fellow farmhands. But Apollos doesn't want to leave just now. He'll leave when the time is right. <clears throat> so how should brothers and sisters in Jesus the Messiah love their spiritual family? By showing hospitality to those passing through and to those who are here all the time. Now Paul issues some rapid-fire commands. And here he exhorts the Corinthians in this letter for the last time. How should brothers and sisters in Jesus the Messiah love their spiritual family? By maturing in purity and unity. That is, by maturing in love. Verses 13 to 14. He writes, be on your guard. Be, be in constant readiness. Be on alert. For what? Anything that could move a believer away from the gospel, from the gospel message itself, from what the gospel presupposes, from what the gospel implies, or from what the gospel requires. Verse 14, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. That is the core truths. Christians affirm Jesus died for sinners and he rose from the dead on the third day. God saves sinners by grace through faith. Jesus is coming again. All these things that that Paul has been preaching. Paul already commended the Corinthians for standing on the gospel in 15.1. Just as he's already exhorted them to persevere in 15.58. Remember he said, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Now he exhorts them one last time. Don't Give up. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong, he says, because 
each of these 10 issues that Paul's addressed and going on in the life of this church is from them simply embracing Roman society's worldly values. And it takes courage, it takes a lot of courage to live counterculturally. We all know that's true. Verse 15, do everything in love. Specifically, love your spiritual family. Love your spiritual family. And one way, brothers and sisters in Jesus the Messiah, love their spiritual family is by submitting to church leaders. Verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts of the first fruits in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to, su- to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it, which is almost certainly a reference to the ministry of the gospel. Paul's not saying that believers must mutually submit to all fellow believers. Paul's exhorting the Corinthians to submit to church leaders, men such as Stephanus, who devote themselves to serving the Lord. We see something of this in other texts as well. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Or Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Verse 17. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Thanks to the Corinthians' generosity, manifesting their willingness to send out these dear brothers to help Paul in his ministry, he lacks nothing from them. For they refresh my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. And now Paul sends his final greetings. I would say, how should brothers and sisters in Jesus Messiah love their spiritual family in your city? By feeling affection for brothers and sisters and when we greet them and thus remind them that we care. This is a very, very important point. Verse 19, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. That is, the churches in the Roman province of Asia, not the continent of Asia, greet the Corinthians. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss, which Peter calls the kiss of love in 1 Peter 5.14, the kiss of love. In the Greco-Roman context, family members commonly greeted one another with a kiss, and when the Lord's holy people greet each other, their greeting is holy. And it doesn't have to be through a kiss. Some cultures will do that. But the universal principle being that brothers and sisters in Christ should greet one another affectionately in culturally appropriate ways. Be that a warm smile with eye contact a handshake, a fist bump, a hug, a kiss, or a bow? How should brothers and sisters in Jesus the Messiah love their spiritual family? By feeling affection for brothers and sisters when we greet them and thus remind them that we care. So what's, what's our typical Sunday routine? Are we trying our best 
God's grace assisting us to greet our brothers and sisters with affection. Are we trying, at least some weeks, to arrive early? Are we trying, at least some weeks, to stay late? Are we circulating amongst the body, even if we're shy, even if we're tired? Are we changing things up? Are we talking to different people each week, different languages, different cultures, greeting people affectionately, people removed from our comfort zone? Or do we consistently arrive late or with 30 seconds to spare? The service is starting. Everyone's already seated in their seats. And then we're the first to leave, the first out the doors consistently, week after week. Or if we do stay, we talk to our BFF. Week after week after week. How should brothers and sisters in Jesus the Messiah love their spiritual family? By feeling affection for brothers and sisters when we greet them and thus remind them that we care. Paul now takes the writing instrument from his scribe and he greets the Corinthians in his own handwriting. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Then he closes with a prayer, a prayer that makes four requests. Our last point, how should brothers and sisters in Jesus the Messiah love their spiritual family? By loving the Lord, awaiting his return eagerly, maturing by means of his grace, and warmly receiving love from spiritual shepherds. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. And Paul's not embarrassed to end his letter with this stark, stark warning. This is a warning that God requires love and that God will curse the people who refuse to love the Lord. Those who do not love the Lord can expect only condemnation. And this request soberly warns the Corinthians not to rebel against what Paul writes in this letter. Nowhere else in all the conclusions of Paul's letters is such a strong statement of this sort made. This anathema, or pronouncement of a curse, is similar to the one that he pronounces in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. He writes this, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Anathema. Love must mark out all those who profess faith in Christ. It is the most excellent way for the Christian. Friend, if you've ever doubted that all true believers possess this characteristic of love, then this final pronouncement of a curse should disabuse you. Banish all such thoughts. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. And this calling down of God's judgment on people helps make sense of what follows, 22b. Come, Lord. So you see, this points to the coming of the Lord in judgment to redress wrong and to establish what's right. And that phrase, Maranatha, is Aramaic in origin. It's not Greek. Uh, Aramaic is the mother tongue of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Greek was everybody's second language in the Roman Empire. That was the the common language, the lingua franca. So this probably represents an early Jewish Christian prayer for the return of Christ. 
which then is additional evidence that an early date, at an early date, followers of Jesus gave him the title that they used of God himself, Lord. But it also reminds us that Christians should always be praying for Jesus to return soon. Paul's cry of Maranatha, come Lord, reminds us how much our world, even our Christian world, lives in the present without longing for the age to come. And brothers and sisters, that cannot be us. New City, that cannot be us. We must always, always, always be wearing our eschatological sunglasses, living out our lives in the expectation of our Lord's glorious, glorious return. He says in verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. First Corinthians begins, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So you see the prepositions change. And that means that Paul prays the Lord's grace will flow to the believers while they're reading his letter. And that his grace would remain with them when they're not reading his letter, but they're going their separate ways. And then Paul ends his letter to the Corinthian church, whom he's had to admonish repeatedly and severely for serious, serious misbehavior. And he ends on the high note of love. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. You said, how are we to respond to this? Everything we do is to be done in love. Do everything in love. This is how to respond not only to chapter 16, but to the entire epistle. Specifically, love your spiritual family. Love the members of New City Baptist Church. How should brothers and sisters in Jesus the Messiah love our spiritual family? By giving money generously to those with physical needs, by showing hospitality to those passing through, by maturing in purity and unity, that is by maturing in love, by submitting to church leaders, by feeling affection for brothers and sisters when we greet them, and thus remind them that we care by loving the Lord, awaiting his return eagerly, maturing by means of his grace, and warmly receiving love from spiritual shepherds. Amen.